Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 73, Season of Love by Helena Greer. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature we've both read and determine whether or not it is required reading. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and with me is, as always, is my lovely co-host who is really just about to take off for a Christmas tree farm in upstate New York, not to grow Christmas trees, but to spot moose. <laughs> Stella, how yeah. are you? There is only one moose mention in this book, which is a disappointment to be sure. But yes, I think it would be great. And, you know, if there's romance around, sign me up. Well, there weren't any moose in our last book. And I'm pretty sure there weren't any moose in Pet Cemetery either. So. That's true. And this is quite a change from Pet Cemetery and Papillon. So it's, uh, it's, it's a little lighter than, uh, you know dead pets and prison breaks so anyway we're not alone this time actually this is this is a little bit unique for us um instead of just kind of doing our usual discussion and stuff um we have the actual author of the book with us to talk about her career and her book uh please welcome to the show helena greer herself hey how are you I'm so well. I'm so thrilled that the long con of us being internet friends for 25 years <laughs> led to you being able to get authors on your podcast. Hey. <laughs> well played. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, so yeah. So, um, I'm gonna read the. Uh, I'm gonna read your author bio here, and you can tell me uh, how much of this is actually true. <laughs> okay. Uh, Helena Greer writes contemporary romance novels that answer the question, what if this beloved trope were gay? She was born in Tucson and her heart still lives there, although she no longer does. After earning her BA in writing and mythology and her master's in library science, she spent several years blogging about librarianship and returning to writing creatively. Helena loves cheesy pop culture, cats without tails, and ancient Greek murderesses. And I'm pretty sure that at this point in your life, you um ship rayan and angela which to this day i'm i just realized we never use the word rayangela which would have worked out really well but i don't know i ship rayan and 
um oh my god where is my yes Sharon Sharon? oh yes I I ship Rihanna and Sharon Tursky look I wouldn't say no to Rihanna and Angela but my heart is with Rihanna and Sharon Tursky Mm. yeah I bring this up Stella by the way because my so-called life is the reason that the two of us know each other so yeah, yeah. No, it, it's all coming together. <laughs> we met on an internet mailing list for yes, my so-called life. life. Yes, um, and I, I will, you know, and I will. Uh, I'm. Uh, you're the one who. <laughs> it's already off topic. You're the one who, when I showed it to my class, and I asked about why the heck is Brian Krakow sitting in a tree at the end of the pilot episode. You actually, I think, you DM'd or tweeted at Devin. Um, Gummersaw, and he replied, and I told the class, "They're like, that's amazing." So, yeah, he you did. You I me said cool I thought he was creeping on Angela's um, bedroom window, and he said that he thought he that Brian was just trying to get away from his terrible parents, which I think is a really legitimate read on the character mm-hmm. um, from the guy who played the character. So, yeah. you know, RIP to Twitter, the place that you could have conversations about twenty-year-old dead TV shows with the actors yeah. from them. Yeah, for now anyway, we're it's it's still it's still there. It's still there. Um the there's a there's a Twitter feed called like the best of dying Twitter that's going around right now and it's really hilarious. So anyway, back on topic. Um so the book is a romance book and um we're going to do our little uh, we're going to do the plot synopsis and stuff in a little bit. Um before we do though, um you know, I think Stella I was trying to count we're on our like fifth or sixth romance um at this point. I know Depending I on how you yeah, classify so some of the ones we've done. I picked Eleanor and Park. You picked the sun is also a star. Mm-hmm. If you want to count Jane Eyre, you can how count dare Jane Eyre. Do you say it in that way? No one wants to count Jane Eyre because we all want to throw Rochester off a cliff. It's Stella's favorite book. Oh, I think Jane Eyre gosh. is a phenomenal book. I love Jane. It's extraordinarily well written. Um but I didn't read it until I was an adult, and mm. I, I, I was too old to love Rochester by the time <laughs> I got to I, it. I, I, Stella and I are both in agreement, though, that Wuthering Heights, no. It's a no. It's a hard no, pass no. for me. I don't like hard pass on Wuthering Heights. I didn't like that book. Um, don't and I know, enjoy it. I know that we, we had a couple other ones, though. Um, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head now, but... Um, I mean, and then, Barbara King Solvers. Yes, like, Prodigal Summer maybe, was, yeah, there was yeah. plenty of romance in that. Or as, as one of our uh, favorite email commenters re- re- uh, said, was thirsty. So, um, and uh, we, and this is actually, I think, I know we did Fun Home. I'm trying to think of other books where we've had a main character or characters who is um, LGBTQIA+. And I can't remember off the top of my head this is episode 73 too so you have to (laughs) you have to you have to excuse me if i'm if if i'm forgetting so just i guess we'll we'll start off by just asking you some questions because like i said i give you the the author bio thing what got you into writing in the first place and then what made you want to write in this particular genre well i wrote my first poem when i was four and i wrote poetry my whole life, I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I went to my undergrad, um, is in my bachelor's is in creative writing and comparative mythology. Um, and I always expected to, um, become a poet and a college professor in poetry. Um, 
and I did not get into the poetry program that I wanted to go to for, mm. for graduate school. And I quit writing at all, not it, because I didn't get into grad school to my MFA program, um, because you don't have to get an MFA to be a writer. Um, but because I was sort of like trying to find a job to make rent and then going to grad school and then starting a family and just sort of like adulthood and capitalism and um, burnout from undergrad. And um, I quit writing and I was starting to be inspired to maybe tell stories again. I love a, um, my favorite podcast in the world is um, the adventure zone, which is three guys who play D and D with their dad. Um, and it's this sort of like, expansive world building and I was sort of inspired to be maybe telling some stories again but I knew that I couldn't um I you know because I didn't go to an MFA program and I hadn't kept writing poetry I wasn't friends with any poets I wasn't kind of on that scene I didn't really know you know who to shop poetry to if I were going to write poetry um and I sort of felt adrift I knew I didn't want to write lit fic I don't enjoy reading lit fic um Sorry to lit fake, I guess. But mm, okay. I have been a romance reader since graduate school. And um, I read, depending on what's going on in my life, um, sometimes two romance novels a day. Um, hmm. I'm not necessarily now that I'm a parent, but in the olden times. And so um, that seemed like a natural progression for me to write. Um, romance because it was what I really loved to read and um, once again you know Twitter um, I was watching um, I was watching Hallmark movies the day before the 2018 midterms because I was disassociating from reality mm. um, and I was rage tweeting about the lack of LGBT representation in on Hallmark movies and I tweeted like hey here's a free um movie plot for you like a girl and her it's a Christmas tree farm goes home has to save it and um a friend of mine kind of slid into my dms and said you're a writer <laughs> you know um instead of just rage tweeting this plot why don't you write this book um so I started a google doc and by the end of Christmas break I had 40,000 words of <sighs> A book having not written really anything in 12 years and it seemed like that was the thing to do um and I had some writer friends who kind of said let me read it and then gave me some revision ideas and said you should really query this and try to get an agent and kind of wouldn't let me quit because they thought there was really something in it um and at the beginning, I kind of just wrote it because I hadn't written anything in so long that I needed to be, I don't know, um, exercising that muscle again. But um, but now it's on Barnes and Noble shelves. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Um, were there any particular romance authors or sub-genres that you have been really, really um into because i'm you know I, I guess out of the three of us i'm probably the least mm -hmm. likely as far as a target audience is concerned even though there literally is a poster for the movie say anything over my left shoulder right now um 
so like is there i don't know was it when you were growing up and reading a lot of romance was it like pc andrews was it a lot of fabio covers was it something in particular that you gravitated toward or because it's a pretty big yeah it's a huge it's a huge genre i love a fabio cover i'm a big fan of the bodice ripper um but when i got into romance in grad school in 2009 um i got into it because of a blog called smart bitches trashy books Mm. which was like feminist reviews and commentary about romance novels so i was able to be pointed by um smart internet commenters towards um romance with you know um without rape as like a plot for the two people to get together um and with some some more progressive values which i think is probably part of what allowed me to kind of have an entrance into the genre um i love like a good regency historical romp um and i love contemporary small town romances which is kind of what i wrote i have recently like since the pandemic started gotten really into historical mystery romance series where there's like um several books in a row with the same main character like plucky lady detective who slowly falls in love with the like a gruff police detective or whatever and also they solve murders like that's a subgenre <laughs> that i've gotten really into <laughs> um i think there's something really calming when the world is like on fire that you know that they're gonna like both get together and solve the murder at the same time um sounds like the she- 80s show heart to heart yeah, Robert yeah. Wagner, and I don't remember who was his uh, co-star. Or um, the Franny Fisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I also read like urban fantasy and paranormal romance. I, I in grad school, I read a ton of it because there was a lot coming out in 2009, 2010. Um, a lot of like vampires and werewolves. I, you know, I'm there are certainly subgenres of romance that i don't particularly personally read i don't read like mafia romance particularly but um if uh someone that i trust recommends it to me and i know that the author is good i will read pretty widely across like historical time periods um and tropes yeah i did wonder about that uh the tropes because romance i'm also you know a fan of the romance genre more so contemporary than than historical but they generally all have kind of the same arc to them. I think we can agree similar elements kind of fall into place. You're waiting for these two characters to get together. They do. Inevitably, there's conflict. And then there's probably an HEA or happily ever after. Did you really want to lean in to those elements or did you find yourself at, at all pushing against them in writing this book? Well, I knew that I wanted to get it as widely distributed as possible. Um, And the thing about selling genre romance is, you know, if you're selling like a women's fiction novel that has a romantic subplot, which focuses more on the personal internal journey of one of the characters, you can get away with kind of not hitting all of those beats. But in a genre romance novel, there's some pretty um, strict guidelines for when you hit certain beats um in a story so um 
there's a book called Romancing the Beat. Um, and, and people, you know, it's within those kind of story beats, like by one third, you need them to, you know, the story to really be underway and them to be stuck together with whatever the thing is that they need to get together. And at 50%, they're going to kiss. And at 75%, they're going to break <laughs> up. Like there's, and within that, how you get there is completely your playground. Mm-hmm. But you kind of have to hit that that timing note um or it doesn't sell to audiences because there's a an expectation within the genre that that's what the book is going to do um and i found because i was originally inspired by hallmark movies that the beats that i was trying to hit originally didn't quite line up with genre romance um just because there's I mean, Hallmark movies are exactly the same way. There's a very specific formula within them, right? And they're going to have, like, um, a montage where people get together and there's going to be, you know, a scene where they drink hot cocoa. Like, but it's not exactly the same order or at the same time in the story. So um, I kind of had to take what's called a beat sheet, which is literally, like, you fill out this sheet of like, okay, here's what the kiss is going to look like at 50%. Here's what the breakup's going to look like at 75% and kind of rearrange the story because it, I wasn't, um, cause the feedback that I was getting from agents and editors was that the pacing was really weird. Um, and so I kind of wanted this very slow, soft, like, uh, one entire third of the the entire first act was then just like sitting around at Shiva when I first wrote it because I just wanted it to be like this really great book about people sitting around and then smooching um and from a sales perspective like that wasn't gonna work so we like needed the plot to start off a little bit earlier yeah so I did have to kind of do some some moving around to get it to fit into what the market expects um, so what we're going to do now is we're going to do a plot synopsis. Now, usually we do a whole, you know, beginning to end one, but um, our discussion of the novel is going to have two parts. We're going to do a uh, spoiler free part, and then we're going to let you guys know when there are spoilers in case you're interested in reading the book, because the book just came out like uh, like a month ago or so. Mm-hmm. So what I'm actually just going to read is the plot synopsis that is on the back of the book. Um, so and then, uh, and then we're gonna have our we're gonna have our discussion. Like I said, I will put a spoiler warning in. Thanks to her thriving art career, Miriam Bloom finally has her decoupaged glitter ducks in a row. Until devastating news forces her to a very unwanted family reunion. Her beloved great aunt Cass has passed and left Miriam part owner of Kerrigan's, her ironically Jewish-run Christmas tree farm. But Miriam's plans to sit Shiva, avoid her parents, then put Kerrigan's in her rearview mirror are spoiled when she learns the business is at risk of going under. To have any chance of turning things around, she'll need to work with the farm's grumpy manager as long as the attraction sparking between them doesn't set all their trees on fire first. Noelle Northwood wants Miriam Bloom gone, even if her ingenious ideas and sensitive soul keep showing Noelle there's more to Cass's niece than meets the eye. But saving Kerrigan's requires trust, love and risking it all for the chance to make their wildest dreams come true. 
you uh you actually kind of you, you kind of um, answered the first question we were talking about like you know where you got the setting so if you if you're going with the inspiration being a hallmark movie i can totally see how you had advent which i want to say is based on the town of north pole new york which advent is, is not advent isn't based on anything several people okay. who are from new york have been like is it based on this town but yeah. not always the <laughs> okay. same town yeah um which makes me feel good because i've never been to the adirondacks um but I hopefully did an okay job. Of- <laughs> I'm from New York. I've only been as far north as the Catskills, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say based on my experience, it probably and and in New England, it probably it, it does track. Um, but it, I find it interesting that um, the main character is is Jewish, and her and her family are Jewish, and Jewish tradition customs are on display throughout the novel. Aside from that rather fun irony, why why go with that angle for Miriam and, and her family? Um, so my dad converted to Judaism when I was little. And um, as with anyone who's converting to Judaism, which is like a long, complicated process, um, there was like a lot of Judaism in my home all the time. And um, I had a big extended Jewish step family. And so... Miriam being someone who's like from a really big, loving, welcoming Jewish family, but is a little bit on the outside of it was very true to my life because I was like welcomed by my step family, but I wasn't Jewish, but I'm like as an adult because I have a Jewish parent and I grew up in a Jewish household. I'm like Jewish. So um, that was kind of a, you know, a part of my life um, that I got to explore a little bit by letting Miriam be someone who like loves Judaism. Um, I'm an adult who's involved with my progressive faith community. And I have a lot of friends who are in our late thirties, early forties who are really involved in church or temple or whatever. Um, And I don't see that a lot in contemporary romance. So I kind of wanted there to be like a faith community aspect to it. And there's just not a lot of representation there are a million Christmas books out. There's more than 200 Christmas movies made for TV Christmas movies that came out this year. Um, and just like very little Judaism happening in any of them. So um, I just thought it was time. And when we meet her at the beginning, she's she's in she's living in Charleston. She's in a she's engaged to, this, to a woman named Tara. We're going to talk about Tara. Uh, a little later, there are aspects of her life that get sussed out as the novel goes on. And since we're not doing spoilers yet, uh, but the way the novel is told is that half of it, 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 the chapters alternate between the point of view of Miriam and Nicole, I believe, uh, not Nicole, Noel, I believe. Um, and uh, so we essentially have two protagonists. Um, I I thought she was compelling as a protagonist. And, um, and even though she was, especially since she was, I don't know if a mess is the right word because she does have she's not a complete, you know, mess, but she's you know, she's she's got a she's got a lot going on and there's a lot swirling around and in Kerrigan's there's like a huge monkey wrench in there. Stella, what did you think of Miriam as a um as a as protagonist? A protagonist. Yeah. yeah. She I would describe her as a bit of a mess, but um no, I liked her. I think I shared some frustrations with her behavior similar to what Noel was also feeling, but that is where empathy of course comes into play because you can be witnessing this behavior and feel betrayed at some of the things that she did. But then 
you also have to understand what went into that those actions and you know and offer some compassion from that so it was a good lesson i think in empathy but yeah i mean i think for the most part she was pretty likable i did <laughs> i i did wonder ma'am if uh you would consider miriam a pillow princess because when i was considering these scenes between her and noel i thought is noel doing all the work here do you have any oh my god on this Miriam? is so funny because <laughs> i 1000 percent like there's no sex in this book it's all off page but i 1000 percent believe that miriam's a pillow princess i have thought <laughs> that since the moment i okay. started writing her okay. like she's uh, yes down to her bones she's a okay. princess yes um, it made from the very first like <laughs> i want a birthday kiss like very demanding and like mm -hmm. oh you know it'd be good yeah i was like yeah i think yes oh i'm glad um, to hear it if her if there were sex scenes in this book that would be very clear okay <laughs> um I, I just would like to point out that on our document, I wrote in parentheses, Tom has no idea what a pillow princess is. Right. And right now he is at work and cannot Google the term. Yeah. Don't uh, Google it right now. Tom. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. Also, maybe open up a, um, a private browser. Uh, in, in, <laughs> yeah. Incognito tab. Oh, geez. Nice. Um, I, as far as Noelle's concerned, because like you're explaining how the beats work and the work um, matches up with as I was reading it, I could totally, you know, I could, I could see those beats. And, and when you were talking about how you deliberately did that, that like things are clicking into place even more. So the whole, the fact that these, that she doesn't like Miriam at the beginning, um, you know, they're not getting along. And eventually, of course, they fall in love. Um, I, I liked her. Um, as a co-protagonist, I liked the I liked the tension between them. Um, I liked how I liked how rational she thought, um, especially because she was like, I, you know, like when, when it came to saving the farm over her romance, she was like, no, I've got to, you know, I, I she was that 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 made sense to me that she would be like, OK, I've got to I've got to keep her at arm's length so that we can do this. But so so I, I enjoyed her as a as a foil uh, for for Miriam throughout throughout the novel, and I thought I I, I did enjoy the romance. Uh, Stella, what did what was your before I ask our next question? What was your thought on on Noel? Um, so many thoughts. I do have some questions about the tattoos, uh, but before yeah. we get to that, no, I I liked her character. I like how she has this found family and in the end they actually include her and, and call her family. I thought that was, that was a very heartwarming part for me. And obviously she has her own hangups and traumas to get through as well, which we also have a question on that. So I, I agree that using the word foil, I think is a good descriptor of her, but they're also more similar, I think, than you would think by just uh, looking at them kind of the descriptors on the page um but yeah the tattoos were very interesting because um medusa's on there i believe and of course your gal pal clytemnestra yeah. and lizzie borden and it, it seems it's a very interesting hodgepodge and then you know we've got baba yaga is mentioned and uh yorona is also mentioned what is it about all of these because they don't necessarily have 
positive connotations associated with them. So what was it that you felt like, yeah, they need to be potentially on Noelle's body or Noelle really saw these as badass representations of women and, and wanted them to be a permanent marker on her body? Yeah, so Noelle is sober in AA. She's been sober for a long time. And I grew up in um, Alateen, which is like Al-Anon for teenagers. Um, so my parents are recovering alcoholics. And in Alateen, everyone, you're supposed to like believe in a higher power, but everyone always says it can be like anything that you imagine, right? Like you can conceive of higher power or God in any possible way that makes sense to you. And I really was like imagining Noel as like a young adult who had been sober for a couple of years and was kind of like a young, angry teenager envisioning kind of a, a higher power that would help her stay sober. And Noelle like loves women as a lesbian, but also, you know, I just envisioned her as someone who would like really like she has, she has a lot of anger um, even as an adult where she kind of like thinks of herself as very like calm and rational she tends tends to judge people really quickly um, and like have a quick temper. And she wasn't particularly well protected by her parents. And so I envisioned her as just like having this kind of spirituality that was based on like kind of dangerous women as a protective force and trying to kind of anchor her sobriety as a young woman and um, in sort of women who could kill you if you looked at them wrong. And so, you know, I just thought, like, if she was going to get a full sleeve, it would be something. She would never just get, like, something that looked pretty to her. She's the kind of person who it would have to be, like, really, really, really meaningful to her. And something that every time she looked at, it would remind her of something. And it's kind of armor, you know. She's kind mm -hmm. of, um, <clears throat> she's a little bit of a Darcy character in that she has, like, a lot of emotional armor going on in her sort of judgmentalism and temper and I think um I think it's a little bit armor and a little bit like strength um so with Noel who who is a lesbian then you have Cole who's the uh who's uh Miri's best friend and and he's a uh, who's gay um what he doesn't know that he he, he, oh, he oh you see huh? I see so this was a so Stella had written was that obviously he was gay from the beginning and then I wrote I was picturing a thirty something Damien from Mean Girls while I was reading it so like that that character or maybe a you should or you maybe should, a Ricky Vasquez <laughs> you should envision Shep Rose from okay. Southern Charm okay <laughs> he's like every um South Carolina wealthy family mm. of privilege yacht bro who's oh, okay. ever existed um he is gay but he does not know that in this book oh, okay like, yeah i didn't right. think so because okay. there's that line that you put in well there's this moment between him and a townsperson and then later on miriam or somebody says something like he's also starting to figure things out so okay. like i feel like now he's on understanding that something's going on so okay okay no no now see now now i'm like <laughs> I'll put, I, now I, I, I'm, I'm curious as to what what his story would be if you if you kept writing about these characters beyond um you know the what you've got planned um so what I guess in writing these characters in trying to not make them stereotypes in a 
you know, I, cause I know you're playing with some of the tropes that are of, of the genre. Um, you know, what challenges did you face in writing um, the, uh, these characters to getting it right as far as the representation of, you know, lesbian characters, gay characters, et cetera. So I think part of the thing about representation is if you're a part of a community, it's much easier to write without stereotypes because you're writing about real people that you know, right? Rather than writing kind of versions that you've seen from social media or from media in general. Or um, So I'm bisexual and I've been out since 1997 or so. And um, I dated um not that you can be bisexual and date anybody but I dated only women before I met my husband um and so I've been pretty involved and um embedded in the queer community for a really long time and um so not that it wasn't important to me to get representation right but um you know I didn't feel as worried necessarily about like writing a stereotypically butch lesbian character because like I am friends with beloved butch lesbians like I'm close to them they're um they're a part of my life um and so I was sort of writing my friends when I wrote Noel and mm. um you know Miriam is the one I worried about the most in even though like me Miriam is bi because she's a little chaotic she sort of wanders or she travels a lot for work um she is engaged to someone at the beginning of the book and then ends up falling in love with someone else which there is a stereotype of like bisexuals cheating um which miriam doesn't in the book but you know she was the one that i was the most worried about getting the representation right even though that's my identity personally because i there's just a lot of like negative press mm -hmm. about bisexuals and i wanted mm -hmm. to sort of like not accidentally add on to people being like oh you know all bisexuals whatever which like as if any of us could agree on anything <laughs> like yeah. all bisexuals nothing <laughs> but um you know i think i was more worried so i did i had a sensitivity reader for judaism just because like ask two jews get three opinions like i there's just like such a wide variety of experience in the jewish diaspora and i wanted to kind of like make sure that i wasn't accidentally tripping over something because i was sort of raised only half in the community and then um i have several black tertiary characters um including black gay tertiary characters and so i had a sensitivity reader for my black characters as well because that was really important to me that i give them kind of like full-fledged experiences but yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons that people look to own voices books is because you're more likely to get like a nuanced, vivid picture of an identity if it's something that you're a part of, a community that you're a part of. And you did, like you were saying, all, all the sex scenes happen off the page. Um, I'm assuming that was a deliberate choice because you were going for the the, I don't think Hallmark movies have sex scenes. In them, <laughs> don't right? have sex scenes. So no. I mean, so was uh, you know, uh, I mean, I know there's a there are a lot there are a lot of romantic and lustful thoughts, a lot of mention of thighs. Um, it's true. <laughs> Noelle's a fat character, and it was really important to me that she mm -hmm. be seen as like a lust object mm -hmm. because fat women and fat masculine women are not in our culture 
like mm-hmm. seen as objects of lust. So yes, there's some yeah. there's some hormones flying yeah. around. I, I I will say I actually liked that um you did uh you didn't put it all on the page and that you allowed you allowed the audience to just kind of fill in the blanks um there uh we mentioned barbara kingsolver very early there's a book i read in college of hers that does that very much thing with a sex scene where you don't see it but you know it's implied and it was i just remember that being one of the more skillfully written things so i really enjoyed the fact that you um you know just cut it because i think i thought it fit the tone very well and it didn't dip too much into like overly erotic porn you know that sort of thing but i mean again i'm I'm talking out of my, you know, what here, Stella. What did you think of of the depiction of romance and and sex or an undepiction of sex? Do you think? Did you like the way that was done, like I did? <laughs> Are you uncomfortable, Tom? <laughs> uh, you know, I I may I be rambling. Either I way, I think. Yeah, it's. I bet if I were to see you right now, your cheeks would be pink. I think <laughs> you know, with romances, it, it there certainly is like a sort of a temperature scale with things and so i feel like we were kind of on maybe like the warm the warmer side and uh i can take it pretty far uh maybe not like super erotic but yeah no i think it was fine and you know with imaginations obviously you can work through that but um i think it was more this book this story was more about more than sex and so i think you have that intimacy i think the intimacy was the most important part and and the love and um just the characters cherishing each other without getting bogged down in i think erotic scenes so i think it worked really well you know um i i partly it's closed door because it's like hallmark inspired mm-hmm. and partly to be perfectly frank like i'm a k-12 educator in south texas and a queer one at that And I just, like, didn't really know what the response from my, like, professional community was going to be. And I imagined parents calling my head of school Mm. and saying, like, the librarian is writing, like, like, dirty lesbian kissing books. Um, My head of school knows that I write dirty lesbian (laughs) kissing books. But I just, like, it's a the atmosphere right now around like queer books and libraries and yeah um uh so from some to some degree like it was a professional cover my ass move but i will say like i love a a well-written sex scene in a romance novel um i think that they can really move the plot forward and when they're done well they're really incredible i um am comfortable talking about sex i've been a working sex educator i've taught sex ed for the last five years without stopping um so like i talk to teenagers pretty frankly about sex all the time i was not sure with this being like my first novel that i had the craft skills to mm. do it really well in a way that it was going to really serve the story and not be like purple prose or take you out of the narrative or enhance the character arcs which i think is you know what i look for in a sex scene um and i was kind of like if i can't make it like really hot and really serve the narrative then i'm gonna just like close the door on it and let people assume that i would be really great at it if i did it um so i you know in some ways it was a little bit of a like cowardly move on my part but i also really felt like it served the this story 
which is a little bit more of like a warm fuzzy book mm-hmm. than a full kind of conflagration book. And mm-hmm. I may write explicit sex scenes in, in later books, not in the Kerrigan series. I think they will continue to be closed door. But um, but if I write books outside of the Kerrigan series, you know, I might consider yeah. doing that. <laughs> so there's another romance of the book, at least at the beginning, you have Tara, who is um, Miriam's fiance. Although the relationship and, and forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, it seemed like it was one of convenience or um. I don't know, transactional is not really the, the way to put it because they did seem to genuinely care for one another, but they certainly weren't. Um, they certainly both admitted to seemingly play a role, even though Tara's heart will get broken. Um, what I thought was interesting is that I'm so used to sort of rom-coms where, and it's usually a guy, you know, like a woman, she's got a guy, boyfriend or or fiance who's either controlling or kind of a cad Um, and Tara wasn't really like that so so when you were developing the character of Tara I I actually felt some sympathy for her when when everything went down as opposed to like you know if if uh, if he was if she was like somebody like who was just somebody that Mary would have wanted to escape. Um, what went behind what what went into creating that character as somebody who's not just like absolutely just an awful girlfriend that has to be offloaded for the new love? <laughs> yeah, so in Hallmark movies, there's always like an icy blonde fiance who's wrong for the main character. And yeah. then she like leaves the big city and goes meets a like hot lumberjack and leaves behind her icy blonde fiance. This is a thing that's so like dime a dozen in Hallmark movies, but not very often in romance novels for the reasons that you pointed out. And so I always envisioned this character of Tara and I envisioned her actually as being like a pretty heinous bitch. Although I have loved her from the minute I started writing her. Like she's my favorite character in all of Kerrigan's. Um, Obsessed with Tara, just sent my agent, my editors a proposal for a Tara book. So like everybody crossed your fingers. Um, But... I envisioned her as much bitchier and the feedback that I kept getting from my agent and my editors was everyone's going to ask themselves like why is Miriam with this person Mm. why would she become engaged to this person because really like they are two people who need something Tara is um, a lawyer who is a criminal justice attorney and she kind of schmoozes with South Carolina's you know old money to kind of get access to try to reform the criminal justice system in South Carolina And so she's looking for like a trophy wife Um, and Miriam has the training from her background basically to be that. And in exchange for that, um, Tara is kind of funding Miriam's art career and they just really like each other. Like they enjoy each other's company, they're friends. Miriam, Miriam describes them as friends with benefits, but some of the benefits are tax deductible. Like they have, you know, a good setup, except that like Miriam, realizes that she wants a relationship that's built on love not just on friendship um and that kind of she handles it poorly um in terms of telling tara about it and um i thought it was more interesting for tara to be a really nuanced character than for her to just be kind of a cat or a terrible person or you know whatever because miriam you know miriam's like a she's a smart businesswoman. She's like got a really successful business. She's got a lot of people in her life that she cares about. 
Um, she's got a good relationship with Cole. Like she's not a total disaster. No. And so, you know, she hasn't tied herself to this terrible person who you want to see thrown into the port of Charleston. She's just tied herself to someone she's not in love with. So I don't know. Um, I wanted Tara to be the interesting thing about Tara is that she is in the lesbian community or in the sapphic women who love women community. There is a lot of love for like really icy bitchy women who would kind of step on you. Mm-hmm. Like that's women love that. But in the like larger romance community, my editors kept being like, why is she so mean? And I was like, <laughs> it's hot. She's mean because she's hot. <laughs> So I made her less mean. Sorry, Tara. Stella? <laughs> you have anything to add to that? Uh, I don't think I do. I mean, I, I personally I don't, don't think I want to be. Uh, I, I wouldn't foresee myself with someone like Tara. I, she she was pretty cold. Um, and it did seem like, you know, if things don't align in her schedule, like she's going to be pretty perturbed about it. But she did go up to the farm, which was a you know a little star in her in her favor, even though it turned out to be an inconvenience for her, and then there was a whole breakup and everything. But I, you will, I think you got your work cut out for you if you if you <laughs> you do a Tara book. That um, I mean, I think people, like you said, uh, there will be people already on her side and really interested in that, and then you have other people maybe like me that got to convince me that I want to be on Tara's side. So that'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to that. There's one or two things about Tara I want to um, get to in a little bit, but this is where I'm going to put in the spoiler warning because we have a set of questions that have to do with the uh, back half of the novel and the climax and and some of the things, the way they get resolved. Um, we're going to talk about a couple of characters, especially Miriam's parents. And I don't think we can really do that without spoiling a decent part of the ending. So if you're interested in reading the book, um, and we'll put a link to where you can buy the book in the show notes. Um, if you're interested in reading the book and you don't want to be spoiled, stop here. All right. I will say though that if you're going to read it and you're not listening, like check the content notes. They're at the beginning of the book. Yes. Um, but for sure, like check the content warning. Okay. There's some stuff. All right. So there is a let's save the farm plot. Um, that is, like you said, they're kind of right of a Hallmark movie. Um, guess which line I laughed out loud at it, when they were planning the party. <laughs> Wait, I've only read the book 35 times. But... It's, it's 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 a movie reference. And I laughed out loud because I was, of course, you made that reference. I don't remember. Damn the man save the Kerrigans. Oh, yeah. I laughed I out loud. I went, there. I went, of course, yeah. she put an Empire Records reference into this book. The problem is well that I've played. watched Empire Records more times than I've read this book. So I just forget <laughs> because just part of my lexicon yeah um what's with today today is is probably one of my most spoken lines that isn't from a a simpsons episode um so yeah so nice uh but no there there seems to be a point and this both of us were were, um were talking about this uh earlier today that everyone has everyone in this book um, a lot of the main characters have various traumas everyone's dealing with something 
Uh, was this something that the audience was going to be asked to realize and consider? And I was wondering, is this part of Miriam's character arc? Because one of the things I noticed as I was going through and I was going back over it is that she she seems very she seems very aware of everybody, but at the same time, people seem to be hiding aspects of their lives from her. Like, for instance, we learn something about Cole and Tara later on. So it does Mary have to get out of her own way in some point? And is this about how a lot of people are dealing? I'm, I'm Stella, you can jump in and help me here if, if, if I'm butchering this question. Um, you know, everybody has something they're dealing with. Is this something that we're like going to be asked to realize and consider? Is it also something that Mary needs to wake up and consider? Yeah, I think Miriam describes herself as having been in like a 10 year long self-imposed fugue state um where she's doing some some grieving and healing from a pretty traumatic event with her parents but while she's in that fugue state she's like really not paying attention to any of the things that are going on around her with her loved ones um and she has sort of forgotten that everyone else's life is also going on around her um and that they also kind of have um traumas you know so she finds out that Cole and Tara have uh, who have been friends since they were born have like um, secrets that they've kind of kept from her because they don't feel like she cares enough about other people's internal lives to kind of notice Um, her cousin Hannah who she inherits the farm with has been keeping a pretty major secret from her um, and kind of doing her own grieving and trauma I don't. I will. I wouldn't. <laughs> Hannah's not doing dealing with any of her trauma at all. She's just wandering around like Miss Havisham, being angry, um, which is going to come and back and bite her in book two, which is Hannah's book, um, where she suddenly has to deal with all of that. Um, but um, yeah, Miriam thinks a lot about her feelings, but she doesn't actually notice a lot of other people's feelings. Um, which, you know, sometimes does make it hard to empathize with her as a protagonist. I understand because my kind of trauma response is also to disassociate. So I empathize with her on that, but it did, um, it does make her, you know, you as a reader kind of sometimes want to shake her because she's just not really aware that like everyone's great aunt Cass just died. Everyone's sad about it. Like, everyone's sad about the fact that their friend is not home because you know he got in a big fight with his whatever like everybody has feelings going on that are equally as valid as yours um and I think Miriam's kind of big character arc as I see it is to decide to be present in the world even when it's painful and to like live a fully present life instead of one where she's chosen to kind of opt out. And, um, and that is kind of her waking up and realizing that everyone around her also has a full interior life happening. Yeah. I, I found we both were um, we, I think we were both surprised by the revelation that Cole and Tara like literally burned down a golf course. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and now you kind of explained where our question was like, why would they be afraid to tell Miriam, but you were just, you were just explaining it really, really well. Um, and then there's also this, this whole, um, you're going home in this novel or she's going home um, 
it, it almost in a literal sense, like she has very, very wonderful memories of Kerrigan's as a child. And then she is also reuniting with people in her family, both found and literal that she hasn't seen in a decade. But this novel is like in a big way. Also, there's a lot of grief for obvious reasons, right? Because Cass has died. Um, I'll ask Stella first. What did Stella, what did you think about how that was portrayed? Like, you know, res- various responses to grief and the, the way the various, at least the three main characters, Hannah and Noel and Miriam were handling it. What was your, uh, what was your take on that? Yeah, I, I think pretty realistic. I think traumas and grief are similar in the fact that there's not a quote unquote normal reaction. Like you can't count on someone to have a very particular reaction to something. And so I, I think that the reactions and uh, the emotions coming from all of the characters very much fit who they were and gave us a hint as to who that person was and their relationship with Cass. So I enjoyed it, which sounds a bit weird to say about grief, but I, yeah, I thought that it was realistic. I did too. And I liked how it um, caused that conflict between the three of them. And with Hannah, especially often caught in the middle, um, because there were a lot of scenes where she's playing mediator. um, And I don't know if, if I'm getting this wrong. Hannah strikes me as the type of person who would throw herself into the work to maybe process those emotions because she always seemed to be flittering about and like you know like you said you said she was angry and she was angry um and levi who is the fourth person that Cass left the farm to and he walks in literally on the last page of the novel after having been all like in australia on a cooking show or something and he had left and there's this whole backstory that's hinted at and like you said it's the second book in the series is I'm assuming is that's what we're going to be learning more and more about. Um, but no, I thought it was, I thought it was right too. It was, you know, there, there's a lot of um, there are myriad responses to grief, which sometimes, and, and I think we can all relate to this. Sometimes there are way people will get angry at another person for the way they're responding to grief because of the perception that they have of how somebody should be acting and things. And I also thought, thought there was a little bit of that, in here. So I, I really, I, I thought that was, um, I thought it was a very, very good anchor anchor for this. And um, Cass was kind of this spirit, the specter that hovered around in a very good way that like, you know, she was very present in the novel, even though she was not around. So were you pulling from anybody you knew or were you pulling from anything um, when you created the, the, the character of Cass? Yeah. Cass is um, originally um, inspired by my great grandmother, Reeve, whose Hebrew name was Rivka. Um, and she was a like go-go dancer. Um, and um when she died we cleaned out her closets and she had absolutely the most like extensive collection of fantastic coats I've ever seen even though she lived in Tucson Arizona um and did not need any of them um the scene where they clean out Cass's closets is like very much inspired by my sister and I like going through um Grandma Reeve's closets and Reeve was like this she was really involved with a lot of Jewish organizations she was um you know, she was this very respectable sort of matriarch with this kind of wild past. 
And her family owned a, well, they do still own, not my branch of it, but another branch of, of that family owns a chain of grocery stores in the Midwest, which is sort of where the idea came from that this whole extended family that Miriam's a part of owns this bakery chain. Um, so that's very much kind of based on my real, very eccentric Jewish great-grandmother and my real extended big Jewish family that owns a food business in Davenport, Iowa. Oh, it's really, really cool. Yeah. And so her presence, I just, I liked the, we're going to do the fabulous tree part of it and all of the, all of the nice uh, visuals. I could picture a lot of this. Um, as it was going on and and on the flip side so there's a couple of characters we haven't really mentioned that we we definitely wanted to get into and those are miriam's parents um who have a serious presence in the book and um so if there's a good specter over the novel of cast there's almost like a anti-cast which is richard mm-hmm. um so what we found interesting is that like he's he doesn't make a physical appearance so he's he's exerting control from afar um we get we get a lot of various hints of him being emotionally abusive um i don't am am i missing something i think it was emotional abuse it wasn't necessarily physical abuse. yeah he definitely i think physically abused like like i think he was the guy who like threw something at the wall near your head you know what i mean okay but almost all of his abuse was like emotional and psychological. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's that, there's that episode she talks about of when she had the, <laughs> she, you know, uh, Miriam has this um, alter, alter ego or, or, or art, art, artistic nom de plume. I don't know what they call it in the art world. The equivalent of a pen name um, of uh, Mimi Roz. And she had been on the verge of a huge break. I believe it was like her first big show and, and, had a lot of buzz and her father like bought all the paintings that everybody else hadn't bought. And I think burned them in front of her as a, and, and it was just this sort of, you know, really horrific traumatic thing. Um, so I guess our question is like, you know, why have him work from afar and not show up at some point in the book? So I felt like he was a really, dark character um like he doesn't have any redeeming qualities he's not a guy who's nuanced like he's a villain and um this is a rom-com and it's a rom-com about two people who have a meet cute at a funeral and then like unpack their trauma together but it's very carefully balanced or at least i tried to make it very carefully balanced um between like funny campy glitter covered like pop culture references and like the deeper work of the book and I felt like if he were to be physically at Kerrigan's that balance would have been completely thrown off Mm -hmm. because he's like so menacing and I also really conceive of Kerrigan's as this so Kerrigan's Christmasland listeners is like a hundred acres of Christmas tree farm and then a Victorian inn with like a Christmas theme that's like Christmas all year long. Um, And the entire extravaganza has like a 
two month long Christmas festival called Kerrigan's Christmas land. And it's like a whole thing. Um, And I kind of think of Kerrigan's as being a portal universe, like a small Narnia kind of a thing where everything's a little bit softer and a little bit safer and a little bit brighter. And like, once you're on the Kerrigan's grounds, you are, you have this like liminal space to kind of like deal with your trauma and your grief and unpack your stuff. And I didn't want Richard Bloom to be on at Kerrigan's. He had been at Kerrigan's throughout his life and Miriam's life, but I wanted this to be a space where she really could be safe because all her life, she made all these decisions, assuming she wasn't safe from her dad. And I wanted her to be proven that there she had a team behind her. She's a grown up. She can fight her dad, but also there are places that are safe from him. Um, so that she could kind of have the space to do that, that um, work of healing from him. So yeah, I just, um, I really felt like it would be difficult to maintain the buoyancy of the book with his menace kind of physically at Kerrigan's. Uh, Stella, did you want to add anything or? Well, no, I was just, uh, yes, I (laughs) I was intrigued, I guess, that this guy is not an antagonist. I would call him a straight up villain because, Mm -hmm. I mean, you also throw drugs into the mix. So he's just he really goes above and beyond, I think, what we are used to with negative and antagonistic characters in romance novels. And I wonder uh, what made you choose to go that like really far in that direction. And the fact that it had nothing to do because I was thinking as I'm reading this, oh, she probably had a bad coming out story. That is not at all what had happened. I don't think that was in a, any of the reasons why uh, he... I mean, she does have that monologue uh, with Noel to say, I think that her bisexuality, you'll know this better than I, um, because you wrote it. But it was like <laughs> a way kind of to rebel against him and have like some semblance of control of her life. But it doesn't seem like that was the reason that he was so against her. No, I think, I mean, she says that like if she hadn't been queer, she doesn't know if she ever would have like, broken with his control Mm. because it was kind of a thing that was like a point of light that he couldn't control for her that allowed her to see that like maybe she could be something different than what he expected of her um so but um no I think um he doesn't you know I didn't want this to be a book that was about like it being traumatic to come out I had a very easy coming out um for I mean it was 1997 so like it wasn't great um but like from a parental standpoint uh, my parents were like okay um and so you know we have a lot of traumatic coming out stories in, in the world and I just it wasn't the one I wanted to tell for this but um I was tired of this is I don't even know if this is what was right for the book but I this is just like an authorial um soapbox i was tired of like villainous men and like especially white straight men in novels getting like um 
a sympathetic edit where like all of their behavior had a reason behind it. Mm. And um, like, I was just really sick of the like Severus Snape, Kylo Ren, like this is a mass murderer, but his feelings were hurt kind of edit that happens, you know, in literature all the time. Um, And not that I was not like to put any shade on those particular two characters but like that's those are examples of like a much wider literary phenomenon right of sort of like let's delve into this person's reasons for their behavior um and i wanted to just let this character like just be a bad guy like he's emotionally and psych and um you know psychologically abusive to his wife and child um he um I, I so I originally had written him to be um like in with some white nationalists Ooh. and like I'm from Arizona so mm. like this kind of dude who's like really wealthy and kind of in with some white nationalists is like not that unusual to me but my Jewish beta readers were kind of like you can't make him an anti-semite a Jewish anti-semite like you know what I mean it was like it's a yeah, bridge too far yeah. just make him sell coke um yeah yeah well and i i would i would assume that you would have to have it explored that more and then that yeah. would have darkened um, in a way that yeah you it was like just have him be the kind of guy who like thinks he's really powerful and like wants to run with some you know really shady people and um it's like maybe friends with the sheriff of maricopa county like just have him be <laughs> that kind of dude um and I just didn't want him to have redeeming qualities. Like I didn't want Miriam to feel sort of cornered into having to have empathy for this man who had, you know, terrorized her young life. Like now he's he's a bad dude. Yeah. Her mother's a redemption for him then. No, none, never. Mm -mm. Her mother's a different story though. Yeah. And it seemed like there's a lot of, there, there's a conversation in in the book, like toward the maybe the back half or so, where where they where she she lets her mom have it because she seems to hold her mom responsible. And I guess I'll start asking you, Stella, what perspective do you think that we gain about Ziva? Am I pronouncing that correctly? You're Ziva. Ziva. Either. What, yeah. what pronounce? What perspective, Stella, do you think we gain about her? as as the novel progresses because i think she develops more than say richard does <laughs> yeah i mean richard's just a straight line of villainy uh yeah i guess ziva's also trapped i think maybe she didn't realize she was trapped um kind of seemed like a what is that called not helsinki stockholm yeah it kind of Kind of seemed like that, like she didn't. It was she was so far in it that she didn't necessarily know that she was in it. Um, and I'm I'm not sure where the wake up finally happens. Like her daughter is repeatedly saying that you were no help. You you know you were in a safe spot for me. You need to. We won't have a relationship until you leave this guy. And then finally she kind of snaps out of it. So I do wonder how did her daughter finally get through her but i feel like yeah she was every bit probably as abused as miriam just in a different way because richard seems all about control yeah i i I took it the moment where she where the switch flip for her um was the richard once again kind of 
coming for Kerrigan's toward the end, and and then she um because 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 it happens like as the uh, as the as like as the live stream going. So they're when they start to push ahead, and they're like, you know, we're gonna fight this. I don't know. For me, something maybe something finally because uh, you know she hadn't seen her daughter in so long, and and they kind of she got some strength for that. And, um, you know, and I also think this is another thing about Ziva that, that helps is, you know, we talked about Miriam and her, her character flaws. And I think another thing that she tends to do is, um, and, and I would assume, I would understand why is that she does kind of assume certain things about certain people she's known. So she assigns a lot of us, like has a lot of presumptive presumptions about the way her mother is going to behave. And I feel that those are slowly eroded over the course of the novel as well. Um, uh, you know, were you, um, were you looking to have shows about somebody who is also abused in that way that like Stella was, was mentioning and, um, and when, and, and, and are we right? Is that when the, when that switch flips and she's like, finally like, no, I have to take kind of agency for myself or control for myself. Yeah, I mean, for sure, she is a victim of of um, Richard's abuse. And I think that children in an abuse situation can't always see that their parent is trapped. You know, it seems like, well, you could just leave mom. Um, and we know that like women and even just not just but like in emotionally abusive relationships mm-hmm. that are maybe not physically abusive are also not safe to leave, you know, especially <clears throat> because her husband has like a lot of money and power in their community and she doesn't i think she's i don't think she has a job um so like there's lots of ways in which she's sort of being um abused as well and i think part of miriam becoming an adult is to stop seeing the version of her mom that she saw when she was a child and understand that um it doesn't necessarily excuse the hurt to to miriam but that the intention on ziva's part was not you know the same as richard's was um and that it's a more complicated situation um and they kind of are both are both victims in that and i wanted miriam to be able to be to say like have the agency to say like we might have a relationship and we're gonna take that slowly and i'm not just gonna forgive you for everything and say everything's fine um you know they leave it hopeful but like pretty unsettled at the end of the book um which i thought was important just for miriam to be able to have her own say in that because she never really has in her life um, she was always sort of like black or white, like either I'm all in my family's house or I've like cut off both of my parents and I'm never speaking to anyone again. I think that she slowly being at Kerrigan's and not being the person in control of the situation, like, and seeing her daughter as a 35 year old adult who's good at social media who's good at saving this business watching miriam be kind of in community with all of these other people her age at kerrigan's and sort of saving the farm was a wake up for ziva i don't know if it was like one moment where the switch flipped or if Mm -hmm. it was this sort of understanding that instead of rolling over and saying i have to just go along with the way that things have always been that there is an opportunity for her to band together with a larger community and like fight Richard 
and have real lasting relationships. Um, like she's watching Miriam do what she herself never did. And seeing that there is an opportunity for a different path that she didn't see before. Now we have one more question before we, uh, before we wrap up here and okay. it has to do with Hannah and Levi, which is going to kind of segue into just questions about that. Cause I guess, um, so at the we're getting Hannah's story later. Hannah and Levi were together at some point while Miri was away for 10 years. She finds out that he's gone and, and his nickname is Blue. So sometimes they refer to him as Blue. And then Hannah's life was essentially destroyed. And that was one of the things at the beginning of the novel where they met, like where, <laughs> where Noel is just bitter about it. Like you weren't there, like which is, you know, kind of a constant refrain. Um so the sequel is obviously Hannah's stories. You've mentioned mm-hmm. how much, um, how much is that going to over without giving too much away? How much does that overlap with this? Are we picking up where we left off? And does that mean that Miriam and Noel's story is done or should we expect more from them, especially when it comes to like the survival of Kerrigan's and Richard's revenge or something? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I, I haven't decided yet if we're going to see Richard again. I realized that I sort of set that up for like, he's going to come back eventually, but I sort of want to ever want to deal with him again. So I don't know. Um, so Hannah and Levi's story picks up where we left off at the end of Season of Love with Levi coming home for Passover um, at Kerrigan's. He hasn't been home in four years. And then it is told in a dual timeline. So there's flashbacks to their whole relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes place from... So um, Season of Love takes place from Sukkot to Tuba Shavat, which Sukkot is in like mid-October and Tuba Shavat is in January. It's the new year for the trees, um, which is very like fitting for Kerrigan's. Yeah. And so Passover is in March-ish, depending on the year. So for never and always is Hannah and Levi's book. Um, and it takes place from Passover to Pride. So June, late June. And you do see Miriam and Noel quite a bit in that book, partly because the whole thing takes place at Kerrigan's. Um, mm-hmm. And they're doing events. Hannah and Noel are best friends. Levi and Miriam and Hannah all grew up together on this farm. But Miriam and Hannah both visited and Levi grew up there. So because his parents are the chef and the handyman for the farm. And so you get to see a different version of Kerrigan's because it's not just this oasis where um, you come on holidays. So Levi is um, demisexual and pansexual and he grew up like a queer kid in a small town in the 90s, like living in a hotel in the middle of nowhere up against the Adirondack National Forest. So like, he doesn't have necessarily the like warm, fuzzy feelings about Kerrigan's. He had a really contentious relationship with Cass. So we get to see all of the characters kind of have to wrestle with the fact that these people, other than Noel, they've all known each other all their lives, um, but have like wildly different perspectives on the things that happened to them together. And I think of them as very much like companion books to each other because all of those people have unfinished business at the end of season of love and Miriam and Noel are together 
and they're settled and um you know their love story we're not going to see it from their perspective again but they're going to continue to like be moving on and we're going to continue to see them as we see other couples fall in love and you know levi coming home and uh shakes everybody's life up hannah shakes hannah's life up the most because they had a really catastrophic breakup um and before that they were best friends and madly in love and they are um trying to figure out what to do and um but it also shakes up noel's life because noel spent the last five years or so hating levi because he broke hannah's heart so Mm. she has to kind of deal with how to feel about him now that he's back and Miriam and Levi have just as much history it's just platonic so you know they have to kind of unpack that so um yeah I mean it's my agent says that my brand is angsty queer millennials arguing (laughs) about what home means or obsessing about what home means and that's this is another like angsty queer millennials obsessing about what home means book (laughs) very cool and i think the the inside cover of the book says fall 2023 so um yeah i don't have a i don't have a date yet but sometimes fall of next year is for never and always is hannah and levi's story which um i pitch to people as being like persuasion meets sweet home alabama Ooh, interesting so uh, like I said earlier in the episode, we're going to have a link in the show notes for where you can buy a copy. Um, it is available at a number of retailers. Uh, but uh, if the, if people want to follow you, where can they find you? Now, assuming Twitter is still around uh, when this episode drops in, uh, in December, um, you can give us a Twitter handle. But I know you're on Insta and other places. So if people want to follow you and find out what you're writing, what you're doing, um, where can they find you? Yeah, so both Twitter, assuming it still exists, and Instagram are the same handle. They are Bloom, like Miriam's last name, B-L-U-M, Bloom Again Curios. And I am like slowly putting out feelers to like Mastodon and rehabbing my Tumblr or whatever. But if people want to find me somewhere other than Instagram, the best place is just to go to helenagreer.com because that will have buy links for the book and updates on whatever social media platforms I end up landing on. And you can sign up for my um, newsletter. And about once a month, I send out updates on what's happening at Kerrigan's right now, which like would be like right now we're in the middle of the Christmas festival and we're going caroling or whatever. So if you want to like updates on what all of the characters and the larger Kerrigan's universe is doing Elijah, their amazing lawyer who beats everyone at Scrabble or Kringle, their giant cat or, you know, whoever that's in the Kerrigan's newsletter, which comes out uh, once a month-ish. Okay, well, and we'll definitely put a link to uh, Helena's uh, website in the show notes as well. So thank you very much for coming on. This was a lot of fun. Um, it was great to talk to you again. Um, Stella, any parting words for our guest? Uh, no, no, I. No, I'm just I, trying not to run over like, everybody. <laughs> no, that's okay. He's learning. Sometimes he interrupts me. No, this has been great. I mean, we always have these 
conversations, Tom and I, of, well, I wonder what the author actually intended with this. And so it's great to, well, this is what we saw. And then you come and tell us actually what you intended. So it's been actually very fun. I, I enjoy it. And thank you because, yeah, Hallmark does have very low queer representation. They don't even have a Megan Rapino holiday ornament. And I feel like there's some suspicion about that. But oh my gosh, uh, yeah, yeah, no, no. needed. Can we get <laughs> for sure? Can yeah. we get so it's it's been great a Glennon Doyle Hallmark movie? That where is our Glennon Doyle? That is true. Hallmark yeah, movie? very true. Oh yeah. So um, we are going to take a quick break, and then Stella and I are going to be back uh, with some listener feedback from our episode on Pet Cemetery. So we're doing a complete shift again, and uh, so stick around. And so we're back once again, and I have to thank Helena Greer uh, for making an appearance on our show. That was really, really a great conversation, and we'll have all the information that you need for uh, to buy her book and to follow her, et cetera, in our show notes. Um, before we leave, we have two comments from Facebook on our Pet Cemetery episode. That was episode 71, um, and Stella is going to handle the first, which is from Ryan Daly from the Fire and Water Network and Cheers cast specifically. Yes. Okay. From Ryan, I read this novel for the first time early in 2017 when my wife was pregnant and it definitely shook me up though not as much as it probably would have had I read it a few years later when I read Cujo after my son was born the ending made me shout F you Stephen King you just wrote this ending to be cruel <laughs> I don't know what the ending to Cujo is so I don't want to spoil I want to assume before, there's but... a dead child I've never read the book either oh no based okay. on the context there's probably a dead kid yeah that is true yeah Despite the emotional resonance or perhaps because of it, this does crack my top five Stephen King list. Stella's right that going in expecting a more pure horror tale is a setup for disappointment. But what King does best in this book is create a pervasive and ever-growing sense of quiet unease in the first half. The word that I most strongly identify with Pet Cemetery is dread. It looms over the characters like a black cloud. Given that, however, it's a little ironic that my favorite passage in the novel is when Lewis uh, and Gage, oh, that's never mind. That's the wrong guy, is when Lewis and Gage are flying the kite on what King describes as the last really good day of Lewis's life, although he would only realize that in retrospect. It's a beautiful scene full of lush seasonal imagery and father-son bonding, and then King cuts her legs out with a line as simple as, and Gage would be dead in two months. It's not even foreshadowing. It's the shocking thunder crack announcing an imminent storm. There's another facet of Lewis's character that I don't hear you mention, although Stella came close. His attitude towards death and how he presents it to Ellie. I don't want to call it arrogant, but throughout the novel, he believes to know he believes he knows better than everyone else about death specifically, and he thinks he has a stronger grasp on death, and it's rooted in the fact that he's a doctor. I don't think it's particularly subtle that Lewis has a god complex, and in this it's taken to the extreme of trying to raise the dead. From his explanation to his daughter, to the way he reasons out the specific timelines, the scientific method approach of experiment and revision with Gage and Rachel's burials, it all comes from Lewis thinking he's smart enough to beat the Reaper. What do we call that? Oh, yeah. Hubris. <laughs> How does that usually work out for characters in fiction? Hmm. 
For me, though, the one kind of glaring disappointment in the novel is how Ellie is just sort of abandoned at the end. I know. And not just by her parents, but by the narrative. She was arguably the most interesting character in the first half. And because of her age, she challenged Lewis as a father more than Gage ever did until, you know, that thing. There are even clues that she may have supernatural psychic power like Danny in The Shining, but she's left behind literally and figuratively. And that's a huge disappointment. I guess I'm waiting for the eventual sequel starring grown-up Ellie Creed like Dr. Sleep did for Danny Torrance and uh, he finishes by saying great episode for the Halloween season I enjoy listening to your discussion yeah you know when uh, that's a great comment overall and I reading it I'm like you know what I'm kind of with you there with the the way she is abandoned I think I was just happy that she was safe and it would be interesting. It would that that I mean, King has never intimated that he was going to do another story with her. But then again, who knew that? He, did he know even fifteen years, ten, fifteen years ago that he was going to do Doctor Sleep? So, sure. who knows? Maybe it's a character that he'll revisit at some point. And I think we realized, even though I, I may have voiced some skepticism about the grandparents mm-hmm. and what would it be like to live with them full time i think we both may have come to the conclusion that because of what they went through with rachel and what's her name zelda yeah that they would probably they probably have learned from all of that and they might be like great parents for ellie hmm. really good point we have two comments from robert ward um and i'm gonna put them together so okay. um, our scholastic book buddy he says i'm still here i think we were giving him a hard time um for not commenting in a while and you know it's all in good fun um, we did miss you and we're glad to hear from you again so he says i'm sorry for not commenting but due to my work schedule and when the episodes drop i often find that i will forget i'm reading every book i never read pep cemetery before and just bought papillon papillon I, I'm gonna. I took French in high school, and I'm still butchering it. As well as added the recent film adaptation to the latter of my Hulu watch list. I've yet to see the newer adaptation of Cemetery. Um, Stella, you watched the 2019. No! Cem- uh, um, what's your take on it? I have oh, not watched it. Um, so my gosh, yes. Yeah, so I watched the original version, quote unquote, in yeah. preparation for. Are recording and mm-hmm. i had originally wanted to watch the new one because i had already seen i would say bits and pieces enough of the old one that i knew what happened yeah but the friend that i was watching it with mistakenly bought the old one so i had to go and buy the old one on amazon as well so i i still want to see this 2019 version went to the library and got it and it is bonkers i mean i was <laughs> texting tom and asking if he had seen me said no and i said okay and then i think i just repeatedly saying like this is nuts i mean i don't want to spoil it but it's nuts (laughs) that's all i'll say (laughs) i really want tom to see it so i can i will at some point i think i had considered it and then i opted to watch prey (sighs) which was my favorite which is one of my favorite movies of this entire year so far yeah so Good God, that's a good movie. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll watch it at some point. 
All right, back into Robert's uh, comment. I've never considered myself too big of a Stephen King fan, although I think the ideas behind the films are usually some of my favorites. I didn't find this novel too awful, but I share some similar feelings. While I enjoy the original film, the novel didn't contain enough horror as I wanted, but did have typical things that usually make me cringe during a King novel. Then he said, his next comment was, after watching Heartstopper on Netflix, I instantly ordered the comics. I think. Brett watched that? I haven't watched that. I haven't read them yet, but I have also started digging into Alice Osman or Osman's novels. Um, somebody correct me on that. Um, I really enjoyed Loveless about a college woman discovering she's asexual and re recently bought the audiobook for her most recent Scholastic release. Having covered Fun Home and Raina Telgemeier, have you, either of you considered covering a work by Alice Osman? Next. Hmm. That's not a bad idea. I'm going to put a pin in that and take maybe a look at one of her books. What do you think, Stella? This is the first I'm hearing of her. Yeah. So I would be interested because asexuality is not something that uh, I feel like is spoken of too much in no. literature. I've read maybe be one or two and one was certainly better than the other one so that would yeah that would be interesting yeah um, outside of maybe science fiction i don't know yeah cool all right well that's in the emails thank you very much um if you have comments about this episode um if you've read season of love or our interview with helena um, feel free to reach out to us um, but before we go, I do have a question for Stella, and that is, what is our book for the next episode? Yeah, well, I just want to, you know, clap, clap for Tom, pat his little back, because, <laughs> you know, as a cis, white, heterosexual man, he, against all odds, he chose a queer romance, which mm. would seem more my niche <laughs> than his. So really... You know, I'm seeing new things every day. Well, Thank unfortunately, you. now after I've I've applauded him, I'm now going to say that he did me dirty this year, folks, because not only did he have <laughs> Halloween, but he had Christmas and he'll have no. February. So Valentine's Day, which is ridiculous. I guess that's just the way the cookie crumbles. But I had a good idea for February and I was counting out on my fingers. I'm like, oh, my gosh, Tom has it again. So I've decided to pull up a revenge book. Now, unfortunately, oh, this revenge book is more. Oh. It's definitely a revenge against me. I Tom, it's on his list. So oh. technically, it's probably not a revenge book for him. It's going to be painful for me. So it'll be a backfire. But let's just pretend that it's revenge all around. But it's also um thematically appropriate given the current state of affairs in the united states of america so we're going to choose a novel i did not like the first time i read it so we'll see if this changes the handmaid's tale by margaret atwood wow in a million <laughs> years i never had you picking the handmaid's tale yeah i know you have awful. blown my mind <laughs> it's gonna be awful. wow i know I am I I I am not wearing a hat. If I had a hat, I would tip it to you. It is on my to read list. It's even on my yeah. little 100 novels you should read poster that I have. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I'm ready for this. Yep. Okay. Very okay. cool. And I've never seen the show. 
I, I okay. kept telling myself I was going to go watch, read the book and then watch the show. And I never got sure. around to it. So at some point I will read it. I'll watch the show, but, but um, yeah. Okay. All right, let's do this. Um, so yeah, I'm going to check this lines. sucker out and, and, um, <laughs> and read it over you the holidays. You have a copy of your school, don't you? Yeah, I can get it. I can get Does it from my school library. Your school do that. The 10th graders, I think 10th or 11th English class is reading it. It, at my school we may have a couple of co- we may have copies in the um book room i don't know if we do i think we have copies in the library and i want to say maybe one of her other novels has we have a bunch of copies like oryx and crake or one of those but i'm sure i can get my hands on a copy of the, of the handmaid's tale yeah. all right well come back for that in ja- n- nothing better in the dead of january uh... than the handmaid's tale there you go all right oh man yeah. oh man and uh yeah so come back for that and until next time um you know this is dropping in december uh so we or i and i i, I i'm not going to assume to speak for my co-host here but I, I assume that she would also like to wish you a happy holiday season where there is hanukkah no. christmas kwanzaa the new year, whatever you celebrate, we hope it's happy. We hope it's healthy, certainly healthy, and we hope it's certainly safe. Absolutely. Yeah, treat people with kindness for sure. All right. Good night. Good night. And as my parting message, if a woman comes up to you and offers to trim your tree, I would just say yes, and you'll figure out what she means after afterwards, and it'll be fine. Goodbye. Good night. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two troops. That's two troops. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. (laughs) 